following sermon audio is from Love City Church, Cincinnati. More audio and information about Love City Church can be found at www.mylovecitychurch.org. Because there was a bumper video, you already know this. We're jumping back into our verse-by-verse study of the book of Galatians. Uh, It's called Free Indeed. And here's, I really hope you, you came ready to work today because today is going to be a doozy. Um, the last sermon in this series, it was the Sunday before Advent. I was in Mexico and Brother Dan Henderson uh, stepped up to the plate. He preached a passionate gospel message uh, out of the first 14 verses of chapter 3. So today, uh, we're going after verses 15 through 28. Now, I want to make sure I state clearly that my goal today is primarily to get us to understand the meaning of this passage, okay? I know that oftentimes more application-heavy sermons maybe, maybe feel more impactful or more meaningful, but if we don't have proper interpretation and explanation of the scriptures, that can lead to misapplication, right? And this is not an easy set of verses to understand. We're going to have to do a lot of groundwork to to dive into this and really understand, particularly because we haven't been here for a minute, okay? And so there's there's a lot of uh, foundation laying I need to do today. Um, This is is a heavy meal. It's going to require a lot of prep work. And I just want to say you might feel a little overwhelmed as we work through this, but I'm going to do my best to break it down into chunks that we can all chew and and savor together. So before we read today's passage, I need to review where we've been and and read the first part of the chapter, as well as read you the the progressive unfolding of God's promise to Abraham. I need to do all of that before we even read the scripture for this to make any sense to you. Because if I just jump into this thing, most of us would be like, what, right? Like W-U-T, what? That kind, all right? So we, we got to set this up correctly because it's really, I mean, this, at the end of the day, this is like the center post of our faith. Um, so thankful for our worship team. They basically preached the guts of this sermon in the first song, man, and we did not coordinate that. It's wild how often that happens. You guys are spirit-filled, man, and I love you. It's really cool. <clears throat> so now if... If my voice gives out or something, I'll just sit down. Just remember the first song we sang, and and you'll get the gist. But I want you to really be able to understand Paul's argumentation here and where he's going and what he's doing and and the the details, okay? I want to know the word. Um, It's life to us, okay? So I'm I'm going to back up and, and catch us up, okay? So that's for those of you who have been here, but we haven't been in Galatians for now over a month. This is for those of you who maybe are just jumping in and you didn't get the first part, okay? So we're not, gonna, we're not just going to pick up and leave you hanging. All right, so in chapter one, Paul lays out a problem. The problem is a false gospel being preached and received among the Galatians. This false gospel is, is primarily being perpetuated by a group known as the Judaizers. What's their deal? So what they're preaching is, the, 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 the boiled down summary of it is, and we went into a lot more expansive detail in previous sermons. So if you're just jumping into this Galatians series, I would suggest you go back and check those out. But their basic thrust is this. Yeah, we believe Jesus is good. We believe Jesus is the Messiah. But here's what we think. Yes, all that's true, and, and, but, and, and you need to believe in him, but you also need to obey the law to be saved. It's not just believing in Jesus that saves you. It's believing in Jesus and obeying the law. And particularly, they were concerned with the piece of the law surrounding circumcision and that sign of covenant moving forward and and obeying that, right? So that was a big debate. And again, I know if you're just jumping into this, you're like, hold on, that's a weird thing to be focused on. We explained all that in detail in previous sermons, okay? I, I, I can't do it today. Okay, so Paul also makes the big claim chapter one, that he received the true gospel from Jesus himself, and that anyone who preaches a different gospel, including himself or even an angel, should be accursed. Okay, that's big words, right? I got the gospel I preached to you from Jesus himself. If anybody comes preaching any variation of that, 
They should be accursed. I don't care if it's an angel. Okay? Wow. You don't just get to say stuff like that. You got to back it up. So Paul does. That's a lot of what we're seeing happen in the book of Galatians is statement defense, statement defense. We're going to end up in a defense piece today of, of the unfolding statements. Chapter two, he explains that he met with Peter, James, and John in Jerusalem, the three closest apostles to Jesus, and he confirmed with them that they were preaching the same gospel, Paul and these pillars of the church. They were preaching the same gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone. And uh, this, th- that grace through faith in Christ alone, that was true for Gentiles and Jews. So there was a Jerusalem council. They conferred on these things. They came away saying, yes. Uh, and if you remember, there was just one caveat that was so important. They dropped in there and just said, yes, that's true. Salvation is by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's the way people are saved. But Paul, make sure when you're out there preaching this gospel, you tell them to remember the poor. You may remember that sermon. Uh, and that, that says something, that that was the one kind of add-on, okay? Uh, he then goes on to explain a conflict that arose between he and Peter because at their feasts, Peter was distancing himself. So, so they had the Jerusalem council. They agreed that this, this gospel is for Gentiles as well, but then there was a problem. Peter began at the feast distancing himself from Gentile believers when the Judaizers were around, okay? So these guys show up. They've got this opinion about Gentiles and, and they, they need to be following the law. So they're maybe not even Christians or sub-level Christians compared to those who are observing Torah and, <clears throat> and believing in Jesus. And, and, and Peter, before that, would, would eat with everybody, hang out with everybody. We, we went through the fact that P- Peter had the, the, the vision and acts and, and we, we, you know, Peter knew what was up, but, but still there was this pressure somehow, something happened. So he starts pulling back from Gentile believers when these other jokers are around. And Paul said, as a result of that, here's, here was Paul's summary statement about that. He saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel. Okay? That's a big deal. So he ends chapter two with this bomb. This is, this is the last thing he says. If righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Another, Paul has no problem dropping bombs, okay? That's a big statement. Now, that brings us to chapter three, okay? So I'm gonna, I'm gonna read with you this text, the first part of chapter three. Brother Dan already preached this. I'm not going to preach over top of him, but, but what's important, this whole flow of thought and argumentation, it, it goes together. And so it's been over a month since we've looked at it together. And, and here's the thing, Paul's big point is that salvation was never meant to come through adherence to the law, okay? And many had come to mistakenly believe that in that time, and there's many who mistakenly believe that today. This confusion is not gone. It it was always by faith, and it was always by believing God's promise, okay? So this reading, reading the the first part here of chapter three is is gonna set us up to then be able to look closely at, we need to look closely at, the promise given to Abraham, okay, and how that unfolds in Genesis. All of that is going to then bring us to our text. And I, so, I know some of you are sweating, but this, this isn't going to be as bad as it sounds. But it's important, man. We got to do this. It's the only way, all right, to, for us to really understand. So I'm in Galatians 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you before who, whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by faith. 
Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of spirit of the Spirit through faith. The promise of the Spirit through faith. Okay, the promise of the Spirit through faith. He's really talking about there salvation. The promise of receiving the Spirit through faith instead of through law or works. That's the deal, okay? Now, <clears throat> in verse 8 that we just read, it said that, that God preached the gospel to Abraham. That's huge. What? He preached the gospel to Abraham all the way back in Genesis as we see that unfold, God preached the gospel to Abraham. That's, that's what he's saying. And then, and then <clears throat> look at verse 14. I already emphasized it, but here's the bottom line. In order that Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. God preached the gospel to Abraham. The, the big summary statement here is that, here, here's, here's, here's what I want you guys to see. The blessing of Abraham was always intended to come and be given to everybody and that to be done through faith, all right? What is the blessing of Abraham? What does that mean? What is this talk of God preaching the gospel to Abraham? What does that mean? Okay, <clears throat> excuse me. I wanna read you this progressive unfolding of the promise to Abraham, okay? And you see that in three parts of Genesis, okay? So I'm gonna read you a piece from Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 22, there's three places where it, it, this, this blessing of Abraham and this, this kind of precursor gospel preaching that God does all the way back. Interesting, think about this. And this is part of Paul's argumentation and, and he brings up the timing in terms of when the law came and when, when this happened with Abraham. Roughly 2,000 years before the birth of Christ is when these events with Abraham happened. So roughly the same amount of time from the birth, life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that much time we're forward from it, okay? This stuff happened behind it, all right? Okay, I, I thought that was cool. Uh, I'm not sure you do yet, but it is, all right? And, and it, it even, it ties in here, it matters. So, okay, so Genesis 12, starting in verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. And I will make your name great and you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And, and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in, all, and in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So Abram went away as the Lord had spoken to him and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Here's a big question. Do 75-year-olds have babies normally? No, they do not. Okay, like what? Hold on. Abram took his wife, Sarah, and his nephew, Lot, and all their possessions, which they had accumulated, and the people which they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. So they came to the land of Canaan. Abram passed through the land as far as the site of Shechem to the oak of Moreh. Now the Canaanites were in the land at that time, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said, to your descendants, I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. Okay? To your descendants. That's the first, that's the first time here we, we start to see this, this blessing of Abraham and what's, what God's going to do. Genesis 15. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, do not fear, Abram. I'm a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram also said, since you have given me no son, one who has been one who has, has not been, one who has been born in my house is my heir. Sorry. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, now look towards the heavens and count the stars if you're able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. Key. And he said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess it. But he said, Lord God, how may I know that I will possess it? So he said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And then he brought all these to him and cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other. But he did not cut the birds, 
The birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. Behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. Then God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Then in the fourth generation they will return here, for the wrongdoing of the Amorite is not yet complete. Now it came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, a smoking oven and a flaming torch appeared which passed between these pieces, the pieces of animal that had been cut in half. This torch and and, and this smoking oven passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your descendants I have given this land from the river, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. Okay, now here's something you're going to, why do I have to read you all this? You're like, oh my gosh, don't, don't act like that. I have to do this because we're going to get in here and Paul's going to continue his argumentation around the blessing of Abraham and its contrast with the law and how all that actually is supposed to work. He's going to try to fix misconceptions about how all that works. And so you need to know what the blessing of Abraham is. You need to see how the gospel was preached to Abraham far before the, the actual events of Jesus coming, okay? And so this, this right here even can be confusing. What just happened, okay? So Abraham, God says, I'm gonna make you to see descendants like, like the stars in the sky, the, the sand on the seashore. Abraham's like, how, whew, Lord, um, I believe you, like you already credited to me as righteousness, but whew, this is big. Like, I don't, I don't even have one son. How, how can I know, Lord? And so God, God makes a covenant, and, and Paul's going to drive that point home. This, this, is, this is a different kind of thing, man. This is not a contract where, where God says, all right, Abram, you're, you're going to do some stuff, and if you do your stuff, then I'm going to do my stuff. What, what does he do? He says, go get these animals. Abram does it, cuts them in half, lays them apart from each other. So now you've got these animal pieces in half, and you've got a path between it, okay? Now what happens? Well, what should happen normally if a covenant is going to be cut between a greater and a lesser in this time, the lesser would walk between those animal pieces. And what, what in effect is being said is, let, we're, we're going to make this covenant. I've got agreements I need to hold to. And as, as I'm walking through these pieces, what I'm saying is, let it happen to me what happened to these animals if I don't keep my word. Okay? But, so, so if things went as they should, Abraham should have walked through them pieces. And should have made a covenant like that. What, but what happened? God said, take a nap. Didn't he? Who, who went through the pieces? That smoking pot, that flaming torch, this appearance of God, this manifestation of God's presence, God passes through the pieces. And here's the beauty of what, what I'm trying to show you how the gospel was preached to Abraham all the way back in Genesis, even though he was napping. The first place we see it is when God passes through those pieces saying, in effect, if you don't do your part, which, which is mankind going to do their part? Are we going to always obey God? Are we going to always do, we're always going to worship God first and never worship false gods? Are we going to do our part? Are we ever going to keep our part? No, we're not. So who's going to pay for it? The one who walked through the pieces. Jesus is going to come later. and What's going to happen to him? He's gonna, his flesh is going to be torn asunder, man. Come on. Hallelujah. The gospel was preached to Abraham, but it doesn't stop there. It gets, it gets even plainer. You're like, oh, I don't know. I kind of see that. I need you to see that because that's, that's deep. That's precious to us right there. God already tipping his hand on what's going to happen here. Somebody's going to pay the price for sin. It's going to be me. He does it in his son. All right? And the blessing of Abraham is, that God makes a covenant with Abraham. God makes a promise to Abraham, not dependent on Abraham's ability to keep his end of the bargain or not. That what, what we see in Abraham getting put to sleep is, we already know how you're going to do it, keeping your part. Lay down, right? Okay, amen. Ooh, that's helpful for me. Come on. Keep me out of a law-based righteousness. Keep me out of a works-based righteousness. It'll help me. Is it helping you? All right. 
Now, Genesis 22, this, this is where we, come on. Whew. Genesis 22, I'm not going to read this part. I'm just going to explain it to you, okay? Most, most of you, if you've been around Bible stuff at all, you've heard this. But So the promise is that he's going to have descendants, right? And that happens. There's a miracle baby. His name is Isaac. Sarah concedes, right? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These, these are the, the patriarchs. So Abraham's son's name is Isaac. He's the child of promise. He's the one that came in his old age. It's a miracle, right? And then as Isaac grows up, God comes to Abraham one day and tells him, I need you to sacrifice your son. This is wild, man. And so Abram obeys. Abram believes God. Hebrews says to the degree, to the point, Abram believed God so much, man, that, that what he believed was if if he does this, if God lets him go through a sacrifice in his son, he, he, was so, he stood so strongly on the promise of God that his descendants were going to be a blessing to all the nations of the world and that was going to come through this son of promise that if he sacrificed him on top of that mountain, then God was going to have to raise him from the dead because God's going to keep his promise. And you want to talk about the gospel being preached. So God calls him to, to sacrifice Isaac, the miracle son that came from, from supernatural the supernatural ability of God far beyond what man could do, right? A supernatural birth, that's starting to ring any bells. And then, and then, and then he has to walk up a, a hill and he's got to carry the wood for his sacrifice on his back. Ooh, uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. But what happens? Abram lays him down, raises the knife. God shouts, stop. And then there's a ram caught in the thicket. God provides the sacrifice so that Isaac doesn't need to be. Again, preaching the gospel to Abraham. Again, preaching the gospel to us. That gospel echo, that beautiful crimson thread all the way through, okay? So that, all of that happens, and that, that's the first part of what we see in Genesis uh, 22. Now I'm gonna pick up in verse 15. I'm still trying, I'm trying to read you. I'm trying to help you understand what the heck Paul's talking about when he says the blessing of Abraham, when he said the gospel is preached to Abraham, what is the promise? What is the promise that he is putting in a juxtaposition against the law in all of his argumentation? This is the blessing of Abraham. This is why we're here. I need you to see it. This is verse 15, Genesis 22. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn. By myself I have sworn. Ooh, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing, and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies and in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This, this word seed is really important. I want you to notice that in verse 17 it seems to be talking about seed as in, as in, as in, a, in the multiple, right? All of his descendants. But Paul's going to argue, and I want you, we haven't even read our text yet today. You understand, you understand, we're about to read our text. I had to set you up this way. We have to look as we're reading through this. Paul's going to make this argumentation that there's a pivot in verse 18 of Genesis that when he says, in your, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. He's not talking about seeds. He's talking about all the descendants. He's talking about a seed. And in there we see an echo from all the way back in Genesis 3, when God told Eve, there's a seed's going to come from you. It's going to crush the serpent's head. Okay? Now, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. That's the promise of Abraham. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. This is the blessing of Abraham. This is the promise of Abraham. And you might be, you might be listening there going, hold on, man, I thought this whole argumentation was about, it, it, it's about salvation by, by grace through faith. But, but, but what happened there? <clears throat> God said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and not withheld your son, your only son. You might be thinking, well, hold on, man. I thought the whole thing was that it's not what we've done. It's, it's, it's by grace through faith in Christ. What, that's, now, now I'm confused because God's saying he's going to do this blessing because of, because of what he did there. But what you have to understand is Abraham already by this time had been declared righteous by faith. So what is this? This, this is, it, it lays out for us what James is talking about when he says that faith without works is dead. Abraham marching that boy up that mountain, that was simply his faith in action. 
It was still his faith, man. His faith was the thing, right? It was his belief in God. It was his belief in God's promise that allowed him to walk his son up a mountain with some wood on his back, ready to cut him. Because his trust was in God and in the promise that God had made him. This was faith in action. It's still faith. It was still faith that was the key. All right? Always has been. It was by faith that Abraham was called righteous. And that blessing of Abraham, right? That promise through his descendants, and in particular through this seed that is coming, all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. Amen. All right, now we can read our passage for today. <laughs> wow, all right. Promise you, that was, it's worth it. Here we go. Brethren, I speak in terms, oh, sorry, uh, Galatians 3, we're in 15 now, okay? Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant, yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, and to your seed, that is Christ. You got that? That We had to go to Genesis. Paul's argumentation is, Particularly there in verse 18 that we read, God's saying to your seed, not seeds, to Christ, all right? That's the reference. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith, which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ <clears throat> have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Mm, mm, mm. Now, we just read Paul's argumentation because of his anticipation of the Judaizers disagreeing with his summary statement in verse 14. I know I already read it to you twice, but I'm, we're going to work back through this. Here's the summary statement. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's everyone that is not a Jew, <clears throat> so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Okay? That's, he knew when he said that, the Judaizers are going to have a problem. They're going to have multiple problems. Now, our passage for today is him anticipating their arguments and heading them off. Okay? We're going to work through that. I'm going to show them to you. Super, super, super important. All right. There's really four main points of argument here. The first we see in verses 15 through 18, and that's that the law cannot replace the promise because that's what some thought had happened. You had the promise to Abraham, and then they thought, 430 years later, along comes Moses, and the law then replaced that covenant promise with Abraham. That's not how it actually works. Paul lets us know that, right? Brethren, I speak in terms, so how does that go? I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. So even men don't do this. Yet when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. So what, what do you guys, God made this covenant with Abraham, and you're, you're talking like now when he came and did the law with Moses, that that's nullifying the first covenant. He's like, no, man, men don't even do that. Why do you, how, do you think, how do you think that's going to happen with God? No, 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 okay? <clears throat> now, the promises were spoken to Abraham and his seed. He does not say into seeds, is referring to many, but rather to one, to your seed, that is 
Christ. What I'm saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise. But God has granted to Abraham by means of a promise. Okay? That's <clears throat> all of that is to say. The law did not come along and it's like, all right, we're doing Abraham's covenant. Okay, now we're doing Moses' deal. And, and that's going to take us on from here. And that, now, now what was happening before that is done. No, no, no. That's not how that works. Argument two Paul's going to make here, we see this in verses 19 and 20, is the law was not greater than the promise. And that was another part of the problem here. And particularly, you're going to see this language around being mediated by angels. This was, we don't see this laid out in the book of Exodus, but we see in Acts uh, chapter 7, I believe. We see here uh, in Paul talking about it. It was, it was commonly believed in this time, and, and because the scripture says it elsewhere, I believe it must be the case, that angels were involved in the, the bringing of the law to Moses. Okay? Uh, I don't know why they knew that <coughs> then, and we, you know, but in any case, Paul confirms it, and that, so that's the bottom line. But here's the thing. This, this deal with Abraham and what we read in Genesis, it's kind of low-key, right? Like God's just showing up and talking to Abraham. It's not like the scene at Mount Sinai. You guys remember the scene at Mount Sinai, right? There's thunder and lightning and stuff happening, right? It's, it's big, and it's, it's like everyone's at the bottom of a mountain just shuddering in fear, right? Like, oh my gosh, what is happening up there? And and there's, there's angels involved now, and it's like very, you know. Um, ooh, I almost just cracked the joke about, never mind. Not even going to say what the joke was going to be about. Look at that. Amen. Yeah. Three people are going to text me like, dude, what was the joke? Tell me. <laughs> Happens every time. I intentionally, by the help of the Spirit, filter myself. They're like, no, I want to know. Don't text me. I'm not, I'm not telling anybody. The Lord shut me up. Amen. Um, <clears throat> so that, that's part of the problem is the, the Judaizers and those that, were, that, that thought they were going to be saved through adherence to the law, they, they were very impressed with how the law came. So they felt like the law and, and this very big, like awesome production in the way that, that it was given made it more important or greater than the promise to Abraham because it was like just God and Abraham having a conversation. <laughs> no lightning, right? We like we like excitement. Get the people going, all right? So, where, is that, where is that? Is that in here? Am I making that up? Look, look at verses 19 20. <clears throat> Why the law then? It had been added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator until the seed would come to who the promise had been made. Not a replacement this is something that was happening because of transgressions, but what was it? What does he say? It was an agency of a mediator until, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now, a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Here's what he's also saying the, the covenant uh, and, and, and what was happening with the giving of the law, it very much was okay. Children of Israel, whom I'm doing a very specific thing right now in this time for a purpose. I'm giving you this law. You're going to obey it. And that's, now there's, there's more transaction language. You obey the law and I'm going to do things. Right? And that's different than when the promise that God made to Abraham. Right? Everybody's, everybody's awake when the law is laid out. God doesn't supernap every, the whole nation of Israel and give them the law, does he? No. It's like, I'm, I'm, I'm going to do some stuff. You're going to do some stuff. You don't do your stuff. I'm not doing my stuff, right? I, you worship me first, right off the bat. Like, I want to be the only God. That shouldn't be that hard, right? That didn't go very well, did it? Like, and then when you break that one, you end up breaking all the rest. So <clears throat> I don't have time to get into that. But here's the point. This, the, the law was different in that way, and that's what he's talking about here. Now, a mediator, is, he's talking about it being mediated by angels. A mediator is not for one party only, but God is one. He's saying the promise made to Abraham is even greater because God made it by himself. He swore by himself. 
You want to talk about an unbreakable covenant when the God who is I am says, I swear by myself that this is how this is going to go. Buddy, you can tear that one all the way to the bank. Because our frailty was not even in the mix of possibility to mess it up. Ooh, you're not excited enough about that. I'm trying to tell you. The promise to Abraham was, first of all, it's, it's not like the promise to Abraham and the law. These are two equal covenants uh, that, that, that are different, and we're going to see which one is better, and whichever one's better, then that's the one we think is going to... No, 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 that's, that's what Paul's explaining. That's not even how this works, man. The plan's always been the promise. The law coming 430 years later doesn't nullify, doesn't, it doesn't do anything to that. That promise is still standing. The law is a part of how God is going to fulfill his promise. It's a player, man. It, it's, it, it's not coming to nullify. It's not coming to, to replace. It's a part of how God's going to get that promise done. And part of why we need the law is because of transgressions, because we're nasty. Because we're constantly creating new ways to sin against God and sin against each other. Dear Lord. And we needed the tutor. We needed a tutor to to show us our great need for Christ, and the law does that. It awakens, it awakens us to the reality that there is a big distance between us and a holy, perfect God. It doesn't allow us to just meander about in our foolishness, content with the, the little trappings of this world. No, the law draws our consciousness to the reality of a God and a being, a creator, a holy one with whom we have no right to fellowship in and of ourselves. It awakens us to the the great gap between us and our creator and our great need for someone to rescue us and do something about it. So the law was not greater than the promise. Oh no. Argument three, the law is not contrary to the promise. We see that verses 21 through 23. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be, for if a law has been given which is able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. I thought of a way to illustrate this. I I don't know. This, This may float like a lead balloon, but we're going to try it. Um, how, many of you, how many of you have ever, or you've, you've watched the series The Walking Dead? How many of you will admit that in here right now? Let me see your hands. Okay. I know there's a lot of people in here that you've only ever watched reruns of The VeggieTales, uh, The Chosen, or um, The Passion of the Christ, and, and you guys are awesome. But, um, and, so, and I made it through like six seasons of The Walking Dead, I think, and you might be like, oh my gosh. He watches stuff like that? And I just want, let me just say this. As long as a TV show doesn't have uh, like grotesque nudity and sexuality, if it's like a major cultural phenomenon, I'm going to watch some of it. I want to understand the stories that are compelling the people that I'm supposed to be trying to share the gospel with. So yes, as a missiologist, I do watch TV sometimes. Now, The Walking Dead first came out in like 2010, And my life was a lot different then. So I made it to like season five or six and then I have no idea what happened. I lost track of it. So that's the reality. But I do remember this part of it. I'm gonna explain it enough that if all of you that have only ever watched VeggieTales, you'll still understand the the, uh, example here. So there's a part in like season three or four or five, somewhere in there, where, where, and here's the premise of The Walking Dead. I, I, I don't even remember. Is it a disease or something? Something happens and now the world's full of zombies, all right? If you get bit by a zombie, you become a zombie. Um, and so obviously uh, some people haven't been zombified yet and that therein lies the uh, conflict. So this, this little group of survivors in, in season three or four, they, they find a prison, okay? And they go into the prison and that's where they find shelter from the hordes of zombies, okay? So, and that works, right? You got big, tall chain link fences on the outside and then and you've got, on the inside, a fairly fortified structure. And so, the, you know, their, their whole game is, we're, we're trying to survive the zombie apocalypse here. And uh, so, so we're gonna, we go into this prison and this creates a, a safe place for us to avoid what's out there, all right? But my question to you is this. <clears throat> 
if we're, if we're asking the question of like, what would, what would real freedom or victory look like in a zombie apocalypse? Would it be that as long as we stay locked in this prison, we don't die from zombie bites, right? To, to some degree, you're experiencing some freedom because you're not sleeping outside of that fence constantly worried about a zombie jumping on you, right? So there's some degree of freedom, but, but you're still, are you totally free? If you have to stay in the prison to avoid the thing, is that full freedom? What would full freedom look like? It would look like someone probably coming up with like a cure for the zombie stuff or somebody strong enough to come through and just, just whack them all, right? Now they're gone. Now you're free to go and run about and do whatever you want, right? You guys freaked out by zombies? What's the matter? You're staring at me like you don't know what a zombie is. Do I need to back up and explain what a zombie is? Everyone know that? If you know what a zombie is, put your hand in the air right now so I can see it. Okay, great. That's awesome. Here's what I'm saying, man. <clears throat> He's saying we were shut up. We were, under, we were under custody of the law. It wasn't, it wasn't much unlike the example that I'm giving. There, there was some freedom there. So, so in our scenario, the, the zombies, the imminent danger is sin. It's right outside that gate. We can, we can run... That law, it can, it can keep us safe to a point, but it can't give us true freedom. We need somebody to come and handle the zombies. If we're going to really be free, man, that's what's going to have to happen. Because here's the question, and if you watch the show, you'll, you'll be able to get this. If you didn't, you're just going to have to guess. But I'll bet you'll get it by inference. Does the little band of survivors have the power to just say, all right, we're going to go out here and kill all these zombies and solve the problem on our own? Can they do that? No, they can't. They can't do that. It would have to be somebody much more powerful than them, somebody with some resources they don't have. For us, that's Jesus. Jesus can handle that problem that we can't handle, that would have us stuck up under the custody, stuck into these confines. He can offer us freedom to really be all that we were created to be. All right? Yeah. That didn't go as well as I hoped, just so you know. I think, based on what your faces look like, but... <clears throat> it's a pretty good analogy tied in with what Paul did here. So I don't know why you didn't like it, but I'm telling you, it's, it's all right. That's not bad. This, this is a hard concept to get people to see. So anyways, uh, here's, here's what I'm trying to say. The law worked in concert with the promise. It was a part of the plan to fulfill the promise. We get caught in this false dichotomy sometimes between law and grace, law and promise. Which one is it? No, 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 no. The law worked in concert with the promise. God was always going to fulfill the promise. The law is part of how he got it done. The law was part of the plan. It was always there. They're not fighting with each other. They're working together for God's purpose. What purpose? Fulfill the promise. What's the promise? That we're going to be, we're going to belong to God and be his sons and daughters by faith. The same way Abraham was. That we're going to be righteous Somehow we're going to be called righteous by faith, just like Abraham was. That's the promise. That's what all, it's, what, it's always been the deal. Amen. Now we get to look with joy-filled wonder, the freedom that this promise provides us, which the law by itself never could. And you're going to see a pivot now in the book of Galatians. Okay? That's why it's so important we spent all this time today making sure we understand what these verses are saying. Because, and I know, I know some of you might be like, ooh, I, I really, you know, I'd like a sermon with more application. That's so much like Bible explanation. But friends, we, <laughs> if you don't know what the Bible's actually saying, we're going we're gonna to mess up the application. And you're going to see a pivot here in Galatians where, where Paul's making these arguments and now he's going to pivot to the application. He's making his arguments about why what the Judaizers are saying is wrong why basing your, your relationship with God on the law is wrong and that's not going to work. And now he's going to start to give us some application and we're gonna, we see the first part of that in these last couple verses, okay? Here's what he says. <clears throat> for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free man. There's neither male nor female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now we're starting to see. He's, 
He's laid it, he's, he's, he's let us know, man, that the law didn't replace the covenant, man. The law wasn't greater than the covenant. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay? The, the law is not contrary to the promise. Um, and that the law was meant to point us to the promise. The law was meant to point us to the promise. It always was. So we, we read this in verse 26 where it says there's neither Jew nor Greek. There's, now, now we get to see the implications. Here's the beauty of what this unlocks. Here's, here's what this creates in the world that nothing else could, the promise, the covenant. There's neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free man, neither male nor female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, we need to be careful about what this means and what it doesn't mean, okay? Does this mean an erasure of all cultural and ethnic identity. Is that what that's saying here? Now, there's no longer Jew or Greek. I mean, we're erasing all cultural and ethnic identity, that that's, that's one of the implications of the covenant promise? <clears throat> Absolutely not. It doesn't mean that. Because ethnic diversity is a visible display of God's creative beauty, and that is maintained in eternity. If you go to Revelation, you will see that we are still aware that there are people from every tribe, nation, and tongue standing at the throne of God, praising forever. And so what God has done in cultural and ethnic diversity is a part of his plan of creation and a part of how his world and his people reflect his image, All right? So it doesn't mean we get a, the, the goal is to be colorblind or culturally we all melt into one pot and become one thing. No, man. That diversity is God-designed. And it's a part of how he reflects himself even better in the world through that diversity, okay? So it doesn't, that's not what it's saying. Is this, is this saying that there should be an erasure of any distinction in our roles as, as males and females in respect to how each uniquely reflect the image of God in the world? Is that what it's saying? No longer male nor female. Does that mean now any, any distinction in how each of the genders reflects the image of God in the world. That's all gone? No. It doesn't mean that because those differences are taught throughout the rest of the New Testament. And I want to make sure I say this. I'm not talking about culturally conditioned standards of masculinity and femininity. What I mean is only what the Bible describes. The Bible talks about ways that, that women are able to reflect the goodness and character of God into the world that men aren't. And the Bible talks about ways that men are able to reflect the goodness and character of God into the world that women aren't. And we're meant to work together in a complementary way to be able to reflect the fullness of God and his image into the world. We're supposed to be working together, not against each other. Well, Satan tries hard to make sure we are. Does what he says here, that there's no longer junior Greek, no longer male or female or slave or free, does that mean <clears throat> a practical flattening of the socioeconomic scale? Is that what he's calling for here, that now that there's no longer slave nor free, now part of what the gospel does is that means now there's going to be, there, there's no variation between people of different wealth standards. Is that what I mean? And why am I saying that? Because that's what some people think this means. There are people that interpret this to mean, okay, now we're colorblind. Now there's no distinction whatsoever between um, genders and, and what, what, what we do with and how we understand that, how they reflect the glory of God in the world. Uh, and that this means every, you know, we got to, we got to, Figure out some system where everybody's on the exact same footing uh, financially. Is that what this means? I would say no, because there are specific instructions to the rich and to the poor throughout the rest of the New Testament. And Jesus said we would always have the poor with us. Okay? So that's, it doesn't mean <coughs> what sometimes people think it means, but what it does mean, what he is pointing us to, is the possibility, okay, because of the promise, because of the covenant promise that we can be made sons and daughters of God through faith, just like Abraham, what does that mean? It means that as a result of that, we can have supernatural unity that defies the dividing lines that the forces of darkness constantly try to draw between us. That's what it means. What did he say? You are all one. At the end of that, there's no longer male nor female. There's no longer Jew nor Greek. No longer slave or free. He says, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. He's talking about a supernatural unity that can only be accomplished by walking in that promise as sons and daughters of God. It's something miraculous. And the forces of darkness are constantly trying to stop that from happening. Angst and suspicion between races, genders, and classes. Hate and separation and discrimination of all sorts and kinds. 
These seeds seek to grow up like thorns and choke out the vine of Christ and the church, which is, which is his branches. We are supposed to be producing fruit that brings life to the world, and yet so often we exhibit the rot of man-made philosophies and foolish divisions instead. Paul is saying here that there is a maturity beyond the foolishness that should be evident among those who have been set free from the rat race of trying to see themselves as worthy by seeing others as worthless. Okay? There's a maturity that should come. And you might say, well, where do you see that? Friends, that's what 26 and 27 is about that leads us right into what, what I just focused on. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Sons and daughters. For all you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. I mean, what, is, that, is that about maturity? Yes, because what, there's an un, undertone of a reference here to what that everyone he was writing to would have caught, okay? When a, when a Roman youth was, was coming of age, there was, there was, they were given a, <clears throat> there was, they would, they'd have children's garments, and then part of the, the, the whole pomp and process of them being transitioned to adulthood, they would receive what was called the toga virilis. They were given a set of clo- clothes, a toga, that represented they are now an adult and a Roman citizen, Maturity. Once you put that on, you were expected to act different than you did when you were a kid. This is part of what Paul's talking about. When we put on Christ, there should be a maturity, there should be a growing up that keeps us out of the foolish squabbling that, that the un, undiscerning gets stuck in, okay? This promise, it brings us up to a place of being able to walk in a maturity in the way we deal with each other, in the way we think about each other, all right? We are free to grow up in Christ and mature beyond the foolish man-made philosophies that falsely divide. We are free in Christ from the false assumptions about others that we so often end up entangled in. We are free in Christ to see our worth as coming from him and not from comparing ourselves to others so that we, we at least feel better than they are. The gospel, the promise that sets us free from these things. This is really what's being talked about when it says it's no longer Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. So often we get caught in this paradigm of not knowing if we have worth, so we try to look around and find someone worse, so I feel better. You're free from that if you belong. If you're a son or daughter of God, man, you don't need to look around at others and be comparing yourself. You, you've already been declared that you, you got the highest status you can get. Amen. Son or daughter of God. We are free from the foolishness of thinking that we can judge a person's character or righteousness based on their ethnicity or their gender or their socioeconomic status. We're free from that because of the promise. The gospel frees us from that foolishness. Thinking we can know something about somebody because of the color of their skin or because of how much money they have or don't have. We're free from the tendency to cluster closely with those who we see as just like us because that looks easier and more comfortable. We're free from that in the gospel, in the promise given to Abraham. We're free to see ourselves as having the potential to add value to the lives of others and to believe anybody can do the same for us. You can learn from anybody, and you should. You should learn from everybody. You should be willing to, to teach, to give of your life and experience and your walk with Jesus. You might be thinking I'm getting off point here, but I want to make sure you know I'm not. Because Paul just showed us the problems that a legalistic approach to salvation causes. One of which is people dividing into little false self-righteous tribes instead of coming together as the bride of Christ. This whole argumentation, everything we've been tracking from Genesis 2, it all flowed out of Paul recounting the issue of Peter not walking in line with the gospel and separating himself from the Gentile believers, feeling better than them on false pretense. 
the promise, understanding, understanding that this is not based on how good we are or how good we aren't, knowing that the promise to Abraham, the blessing of Abraham comes by faith. It's a gift of grace. It erases the ability for us to walk around feeling better than other people. And it erases the need for us to do that, that compulsion to feel like we need to because if you can rest, dear one, in your identity as a son or daughter of God, if I come and I poke you and I say, who are you? And the first real answer that flows up out of your heart is I am a son or daughter of God, then you are not left scraping and pining for some kind of meaning. You have it. You stand on stable ground that cannot be taken from you. You are who you are primarily in Christ and then all of the rest of who you are, is, is, it, it, it's, it branches out on the edge. The, the center of your being is, and, and your definition of how you see yourself is centered in your connection to God through Christ. I am in Christ. I'm in God. I'm a son or a daughter of God. You can't take that from me. I'm a dad, that's a big part of my identity, but that could change. I could lose my kids, I'm a husband, I could lose my wife, I'm a pastor. Something could happen to that, you understand? And, and when people have their primary identity as any of these things other than son or daughter of God, any of those other things can be shook. And when it's shook out from under you, what do you do? Most of the time you crumble. But God wants to save you from that. God wants to keep you out of that devastation. Amen. There's a way. How? How do I stay out of it? You cling to the promise. The gospel preached to Abraham all the way back in Genesis. The plan that was always the plan that the law didn't nullify. The law was simply a part of that plan unfolding for God to save men and women by grace, through faith, through faith in Christ. Hallelujah. Never going to be by the law. Get out of here. The gospel frees us from tribalism fueled by the need for a meaningful identity. Friend, if you know you're a sinner and you've trusted Jesus as your savior, then you are a son or a daughter of God. And that is what's going to matter for eternity. That means you are loved and valuable and wanted. And to experience this kind of shocking love and grace always brings with it a desire to share it with others. And so friends, let's lean into that desire with more zeal and passion than ever before. And let's join our king in tearing down every false dividing wall erected by those who have been fooled into building them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we've come before you in the name of Jesus and uh, we thank you for uh, your word. God, thank you for this church. Thank you for a group of people that is willing to get in and dig and work hard in your word. Lord, we don't, <clears throat> we don't want to be a people that uh, use your word as, as, as just a, a launch pad to get real excited about our own ideas. Uh, Lord, your word is life to us. Your word is it's bread and it's living water and it is what we need. And so, God, thank you. I just thank you I get to be a part of a church that cares about what your word says and, and will labor in it. Thank you. Uh, for what you've taught us today in your word. It's, at the core of it, it's something we talk about every week. It's that your gospel is by grace. But Lord, to, to track this argumentation, to see Paul anticipating the, the arguments of those who would be coming against it, Lord, help us to see how this isn't just an ancient debate, but it translates into our struggles today. It translates into the struggles people are gonna be having that we try to share the promise of Abraham with, that we try to share that they can have hope in Jesus. These are, these are common uh, pitfalls, common hurdles. Um, it's really hard to understand how, <laughs> how relationship with you could be based on grace and faith. It, it seems like it should be merit. It seems like good people should get to be your sons and daughters and bad people shouldn't. That's, that makes sense. But Lord, you did it a different way. You did it a far more glorious way. You did it a way that actually worked. <laughs> you always had a plan and it wasn't for the law to bring salvation. It was that your promise would be fulfilled. That if we'd believe you, if we'd trust you, you'd call us righteous. And so we're thankful for that. Uh, help us to live in that, God. Help us to live out of it for your glory, Master, and our good in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Love City Church. 
located in Cincinnati, Ohio. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. To give or find out more about Love City Church, visit www.mylovecitychurch.org.